Welcome to the Metal Zone episode from Monday, December 16th, 2019. This is episode 27, and I'm Tom. And I'm Stefan. And, well, I talk a little bit about pre-processing uh, algorithms that I developed for creating gradient infill for 3D prints. Tom is talking about post-processing of 3D printed parts using SLA resin. On the news, Marlin 2.0 is finally out and we just, yeah, talk a little bit about what that means. And E3D's new direct extruder, formerly known as the E3D Hermes, is now known as the E3D Chimera. <laughs> so hard, I always get it wrong. Um, yeah, and we just talk a tiny bit about the background and just, yeah, about the extruder itself. Yeah, and topic of the week. Prusa requires you to break your mainboard if you want to flash custom firmware to it. What does that actually mean? And is that actually worth talking about? Well, we talk about it anyways, because it, it did stir up... Uh, you know, some comments in the community and obviously where there's smoke, uh, there is fire. Moving on to questions. Igus's tribological 3D printer filaments, have you used them and what would we use them for? And what have we used them for? Eric Sederberg is making a lot of corrections and, and has given some good input on the entire metal printing subject we talked about last time. So we go through those. And then to round everything out, we talk about some more RC flying and some more lightweight printing, uh, including a shout out from uh, Project Air. Shout out to you as well. Stefan, we're lens buddies now. Yeah, we're lens buddies. <laughs> <laughs> People love us talking about the meta YouTube uh, uh, filmmaking yeah. stuff. I, I finally invested, um, coincidentally, at the end of the year in, uh, hmm. in one of the new lenses. Well, if, yeah. if actually, a friend asked me a um, couple of weeks ago if I'd be cool taking some pictures at his wedding. And even though the GH5 is a really good camera for filming due to the small sensor, it's not the best in low light conditions. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, it's Black Friday. The lens is a little bit cheaper. Uh why not invest in something which might last for the next couple of years, I hope. So yeah, yeah I also bought the 10 to 25 F1.7 oh. Panasonic <laughs> yeah. lens. I'm I'm kind of envious because you, you got it for a much better deal than I did. Because I, I thought like, ah, oh, these these Panasonic lenses, they don't <laughs> drop in price for, for half a year. And then they're like, ah, oh, 50 bucks off or something. Yeah. You got it for way, way cheaper. And you got a cashback too. Yeah. In the oh. end, it was still 1500 bucks but you paid 2000 i paid the full 2000 retail yeah <laughs> um how are you liking it so far um, is it your, your youtube go-to lens already well to be honest my youtube go-to lens is my 30 millimeter macro lens <laughs> because i i yeah. really like to get yeah, have... close into stuff but it will be the lens on my gh5 where i um also like film as well and the nice thing with the big aperture is that it's just really cool to get a lot of really nice bokeh in the background. Yeah, it looks, looks pro and you don't need much lighting anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I think that sums up the, the meta stuff. The Let's head into projects. Yeah. <laughs> and you're first. 
Yeah, so I have been working for a couple of weeks on a project that, that just popped into my head one morning when I drove to work. So I've been working a lot on extrusion multiplier and just trying to figure out how wide and how small you can extrude with a, a normal 0.4 millimeter nozzle on 3D printers. And I figured out that you can go more or less all the way from a 0.2 millimeter line to all the way to like a 1.2 or even a wider line, um, which is might be good for layer adhesion. It might be good for... You got to fly there. Yeah. <laughs> you see that too. God. Uh, which, which is kind of nice to uh, print faster, print a little bit stronger. But the thing that came up in my head, why not use this like dynamic of the nozzle and the extrusion system to get a gradient infill in your part? And I have a part right here, uh, just like this clover, clover leaf. How do you say yeah. Clover leaf. Clover leaf. Uh, where you can see that that uh, the area around the uh, perimeter is way denser than the center of the part. So that is just extrusion width. It's that, not actual varying the infill pattern like, uh, I mean, Cura has that built in yep. with the cubic, yep. whatever it's called, where it has a shell where it's very high density and then the inside is just a larger chunks. But that you, you're having the same pattern as just more or less material. In exactly. Pattern. Because, well, my goal was to use like just a normal slicer. And the only thing that you vary is the amount of material you push through the nozzle at a specific point during your extrusion move. And um, that doesn't cost additional time. Um, that should make the usage of material more efficient because the stresses of like a mechanically loaded part are usually the highest on the surface. And um, you don't need that much strength in the core of a part. And yeah, it, it, it kind of worked out. And so what, what I basically did is I just sliced the part. Um, Cura does really nice... Um, comments in the g-code where it says okay now a section of infill starts right and then i took the extrusion moves uh, just uh, scripted a little program in python and always checked the distance of the extrusion move to like the nearest perimeter line and depending on that distance i kind of scaled up or scaled down the amount of material that goes out of the nozzle. And the first implementation, uh, the first implementation was with gyroid infill. Gyroid infill because um, the gyroid infill consists out of a lot very short moves. So I could just take right. each like step from one point to the next and compare that segment to the perimeter. You don't need to cut up uh, like infill moves because exactly. on, on a on the rectangular infill you just showed it's literally just one line and you can't really vary the extrusion multiplier. I assume you're using exactly uh, yes doing that move. Yeah. yeah. So the second okay. implementation was that I took this line that goes from one side of the part to the other and chopped it into small segments, just like one millimeter long segments, and then I compared the position of this extrusion segment to the nearest perimeter and scaled the extrusion multiplier up and down. And it, it's working kind of nice. So the results are really beautiful, as you can see right here. Uh, yeah. Because I, well, I 
for those parts, I'm, I'm still in the process of figuring out how well it works and uh, which infill pattern is the best and things like that. But um, so the scaling on those part is usually 300% extrusion multiplier just right next to, to the perimeter and just like 20 or sometimes even 0% in the core of the part. Yeah, so that means you, you're doing like an infill density in the slicer of around 30% max, I guess, because you're doing times three, so it wouldn't, yeah. you know, you wouldn't want to over-extrude or, exactly. or extrude yeah. more than 100%. Yeah. yeah. So that, that's really interesting because I've, I've, I've thought about how would you do something like that? Um, I know people who really need that sort of an approach. Um but right now it's either use the, the cura built-in which just works with that one pattern or you know you do like modifier meshes inside your mm -hmm. mesh but you have to like manually generate those either in fusion or in blender and shrink down your original part create extra geometry and then use that as yep. it's just a really messy process and what, what you're doing is literally just a post-processing exactly step. and now the thing i'm yeah. actually hoping for is this method is totally simple and each slicer has exactly that information i'm like reverse engineering myself so what i would actually hope for the future is just to ha have a checkbox in the slicer which says gradient infill and yeah, or just a, an infill pattern that does that exactly um, yeah with the additional parameters of thickness and maximum and minimum extrusion and i think this even, even though it might not be applicable for every part but it could just bring like slicing software another small step forward yeah because it's it's material saving without really deep well it's i theoretically basically it should always improve a part it should never uh make a part weaker if you're using the same amount of material it's just distributed more intelligently exactly yes um now the, the question i have is how does it work uh along the z-axis because you're just showing open parts um, so you can see it, but also I think yeah. if, you, if you're just you're working on one layer, yeah. you, you're not really capping it off to yeah. the top. So at the moment, it's not done, working on the z-axis. Um, it could be implemented basically, but this is something I would hope that the slicer manufacturers do because they have the information: how far am I away from the next wall in three dimensions and not in two dimensions. I guess I guess if you if you're already extracting that information from a 2D layer, you could also extract it from like the next layers up and and down and kind of work your way back and rebuild a 3D mm -hmm. model from the G code, which <laughs> yeah seems unnecessarily complicated. Well, the thing is, um, I'm planning to do a video on that Please either do. at the end of this year or at the beginning of next year, and all the horrible python code that i wrote will be fully open source and there are, are probably some really nice and and skilled uh programmers out there for sure who can improve on on what i did and what my idea behind that was for me it's just a proof of concept i want to show that it's possible and then hand it over to the guys that are skilled <laughs> yeah i mean the most important thing is that you you actually made it. You made it work. Yeah. Uh, nobody else did that. You know, nope. not not that we know of. But nope. uh, yeah, this was actually that, one of the things uh, I thought. Okay, I at least have to put a couple of pictures out on Twitter and Instagram, just that nobody else can uh, can patent patent it. I don't know. So uh, software I patents. Yeah, I don't know if if they're, they're actually a thing. But yeah, the, well, they are a thing. Um, there are. Um, Stratasys has a ton of 
patterns on different extrusion moves and stuff like that which we can't use there are some some moves for like hiding the um the, oh, yeah, the that, seam that, that on uh, tucking yes. Like, stuff like that uh but just because they they have received the patent doesn't mean that it's also defendable which is uh i mean we could get into that whole, yeah. entire patent system discussion but no i think that would uh, exceed the capacity of this episode yeah definitely no um as i said i want to bring it out and like the the second stage of that what i'm really aiming for is take topology topology optimization data and topology optimization data is just right it, it's really giving you a gradient at which location do you want what amount of material so the thing that you're usually seeing at the end of a topology optimization is just that um the model that you see is capped at a specific uh density but still yeah, you, all in, in fusion you have a slider where you exactly. can set that cap yeah, yeah. so I, uh, I actually want to export that data and then map it on my part. And without any like modifier meshes and stuff like that, you can simply, really simply do like gradient infill and really optimal infill at the locations where you need it. It's still not oriented in like the direction where your load goes, but um, okay, it's still if a you process, yeah, if if you apply that properly, you can get a hundred percent infill in the areas where you need it. And this is yes, it's still beneficial. Yeah. There you go. And that, I mean, yeah, having, having that uh, topology optimization, yeah, that, that data available really saves you from, well, I guess also from having to detect perimeters and, and all that. Yeah, right? because you only take that data. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. really cool. So how, how have you found found programming the entire thing in Python? Um, because checking for the nearest perimeter <laughs> sounds like uh, either something that that's horribly well overcomplicated to yeah. program yourself. Or is there a library for that? Uh, I guess no, Python is just no. import this and import that, right? Um, I basically <laughs> never worked in Python before, and I had the idea in the morning. I came back home from work like at four o'clock in the afternoon and i did like a four hour session of learning python and doing like the first prototype of the software and it's it's kind of simple it's it's a g-code parser so i take the xyz and e things out of the steps and then do just some simple mathematics to figure out the positions Uh, python is really easy Uh, if you have ever programmed in uh, any other programming language it's it's so well it's it's different, but it's kind of nice because you don't need to fiddle around with data types and stuff like that. Everything oh, yeah. is just a variable. Yeah. Um, but with, with programming, it's the same as with CAD or video editing or whatever. If you know like one approach, you just get the, the basic idea of how things mesh together. And then it's just yeah. the, the actual craft of using that, that program. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I did... Nice. Well, I did some work on on G code, and you did some work on like the finished part. Oh God, you, you're making me look bad here. Like <laughs> you're doing all this intricate work, and I just smeared some resin on some parts. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, um, so yes, yeah, simpler stuff. Um, so what what I tried what, what what's it called? XT no XT sixty is the is the RC battery connector. XTC thirty is the the two-part finishing resin that he, I think it's XC30, uh, that he put on your parts. And I thought, well, you know, we already have resin. um, And this stuff is literally just uh, Prusa resin, Prusa SLA resin. 
thinned down a bit. Um, and I did a, a few tests, like there's a lot of detail here that gets capped off. Like you can see between the, well, probably nobody can see because it's, it's too small, but between these branches, there's a, a little hole that gets capped off. Um, I did a bunch of experiments on seeing what would give me the glossiest, smoothest surface versus also retaining details still, because I, I think those two are kind of interlinked. I, tr I tried or experimented with heating up the resin mm -hmm. with a with a hot air reflow, which lets me just, it's just a temperature controllable heat gun, basically, uh, with thinning it down with IPA, different brushing and, and dripping and uh, dipping techniques. And yeah, I think I found something that, that actually works really well. This thing looks like it's well, almost. You can still see some imperfections in the print. Mm. But this thing looks really good. Like, I'm I'm seeing it because I've got the light here. This is very nice and glossy. Mm -hmm. Hit this maybe with a bit of, of sandpaper and it's just perfect. So, yeah, these these are the um, shelf brackets that I did with topology optimization scaled down to 30%. And I also did... <laughs> Uh, this guy, so this is, this stuff here is Prusa resin, which does harden, uh, which does harden well. This is um, the Wanhauer resin that I've never gotten to print because it just doesn't cure through all the way through. Mm. And I think on camera, if you're watching on YouTube, maybe I'll scoot over so you can actually see it in frame. This thing looks fantastic. It's just, especially with an alien egg like this, it, oh wow, just makes a lot of... A lot of sense to have it like all sticky and slimy and it's physically actually still sticky. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what, yeah. I, what I can see on the parts is that you still retain like this yellowish hue on the parts. These were um, yellow resins. Okay. So the Prusa resin is actually the, the Prusa orange one. So okay. this obviously has a, an orange tint to it. And this is also the yellow... Uh, one hole resin though i think most of the dye in here is actually settled out and i just used like the resin resin part of it <laughs> um though what you can see maybe I'll, I'll show you here um down here and i'll show you guys on camera too i did use a 50 watt uh uv led uh, just a cob led with a built-in driver and if you actually move that too close to the part at full blast, the resin just gives off a, a small puff of smoke, uh, cures instantly. I mean, it's it's an exothermic reaction, right? Mm -hmm. It's it just, it, I guess it cooks itself, it overheats, and in those spots it also separates from the part. Okay. But because it's a, it's a relatively thick shell, that doesn't matter. But I realized after the first coat, like, maybe I should go a bit slower with okay. doing this. But yeah, this is... I. I'm surprised that nobody else has done this because this is a really nice and fast way to finish parts. And um, it has become these. quite cheap compared and to other I, resins, I guess, probably. How, how much is XCC30? <sighs> isn't any... Well, it's it's all resin. It's all like in the same ballpark. You pay 20 bucks for 200 grams. Okay, so that that is more expensive than than, for example, Elegoo resin. Yeah, so a hundred bucks per kilo. Okay, so SLA resin is around forty or fifty bucks per kilo, and it's a lot faster to work with because, and I think also a lot easier because you, you don't have a, a two part mix that you have to mix up and then you know it starts curing and you, you you're rushing to get it on. You can work with this stuff as long mm. as you want. Uh, and once you're happy with the result, you just pop it in some UV light. I did it with the uh, CW1, the Prusa curing station. And it's just, it's 
it's done within minutes and you can put the next coat on. So really happy with the results. Um, this is a lot cleaner than that, um, than, the, than the egg, because you have a container <laughs> where, where you catch everything. This obviously, if you, if you actually brush it on with a paintbrush, um, does work, but you have to reach in there and it mm. it is kind of messy, but I guess, well, sorry, but I guess so is every other mm. finishing process. Yeah, it's it's it looks really interesting. It just gives the part a really nice and shiny finish. And if you would have used for this part either a really black or or a transparent resin, um, it would just look like a, a an SLA printed part. The question is, when... it would look better though because there are no layers on SLA. You can okay. still see layers if yeah. it's on an, on an angle. Yeah. What's the question? Why don't you print those parts then not directly out of resin? It's it's just it's like the the devil's advocate question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I've I've got these parts printing in resin right now. These this small shelf yeah. brackets so that I have a, a comparison. Um, obviously, that that's what comes to mind if you have an SLA printer. Then do that. However, let's get the the other glove. Um, you're limited in size, and you can't really post process. Well, you're limited in size. You're limited with in size with SLA, but mm. not with with FDM. You're typically printing much larger parts, yep. and you can also assemble parts and then finish them. So, size wise, really, that there's no real limit to this. And I think the finish from uh, covering it with with resin and, and and coating it with resin is maybe less detailed, but definitely smoother than than what an SLA print is, because mm. SLA prints are always matte. Um, and again, you can still see the lays if you just if if you don't add any more mm. uh, filler or primer or anything no. on top. I and still want to paint these things with a really shiny paint, though. Mm. No, they look really, really nice. The... This thing looks absolutely disgusting, which it should, <laughs> which is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> exactly what you're aiming yeah. for. <laughs> I'll, I'll plant some uh, aloe vera in here, so <laughs> I think that, that fits. Uh, and it's probably even even though you're using resin, less messy than an SLA print because you don't have to clean the parts in IPA and all the resin that is kind of now in your in your small box uh, below the bracket uh, shelf yeah. bracket. It just this cures is, and then hardened. you pop it off. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think I can do that right now. Yeah. There, there you go. Yeah. So this actually comes loose from the IKEA box because the IKEA box is PP, yeah, and nothing really sticks to that. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't think this is all fully cured, but yeah, I don't want to dig through this. Um, but yeah, it it does come out, and you're rarely dealing with raw resin. It's also a lot cleaner than than um, spraying it with filler primer or something. Yeah, I have been working yeah. with. Uh, I think it was polyester something something it had a horrible smell it was also two-part oh, yeah. polyester thing that you could uh, put in your airbrush um Ooh. also really not i don't know if it was polyester but something like that um yeah no also but two, just two uh, part the two-part resin in a in a spray tool um i mean usually paints are, t are two components uh, yeah. but wow uh, you gotta clean that stuff out really fast <laughs> definitely uh, it also gives a really nice finish on the parts but it smells so horrible so so horrible yeah <laughs> then it was probably polyester resin yeah. because that stuff does smell yeah. really bad <laughs> cool 
So, yeah, so that, that was my experimentation and next video topic. Probably the video is going to be out sometime around when the, uh, when the podcast is out. Cool. Looking forward to that. You know what else is out? Tell me. Marlin 2.0. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's out of beta. Um, so Marlin 2.0 has been available as a, as a beta version for over a year. Mm-hmm. Over, well, more, much longer than, than a year. And there's now the 2.0.0 version of Marlin available. That... So officially ready for production. Manufacturers have been using it uh, for a while already. The the Raptor runs with uh, Marlin 2 beta, which is a bold move to run a machine you're shipping with an unfinished <laughs> firmware, but they they do what they gotta do. But now it is it is officially Yeah, out. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. It has some really nice features that might be interesting for yeah, future printers. Um be it only just like using 32-bit boards. Uh, being faster, being able to attach scr- like color screens directly to the boards and stuff like that. Yeah. Also, uh, things like some features like uh, what is it? Um, the acceleration, just one derivative more. Uh, uh yeah, proper jerk, I, I guess. Proper jerk it's, settings. It's, We've been calling it jerk for a while, but jerk technically is not what Mar- the old Marlin has been doing. Yeah. So I think that's just, that's called junction deviation or something. Junction now. deviation. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that, but I mean, obviously the, the biggest thing with Marlin 2.0 is that it runs on all boards. Uh, that's literally what the, what the Marlin t-shirt says uh, for all the boards. It runs on both 32 bits yeah. uh, and on 8 bit. So you can still use your old Admega, whatever, maybe not the 644p, but the the more modern ones or the, the bigger chips. Uh, you can still upgrade your old printer to Marlin 2.0. Okay. Because it, that, that, that's the, I think that's the biggest thing moving forward from now is that Marlin, Marlin 1 was always made for the 32-bit board. So they would directly interface with the hardware features that, that the Admega chip offered. So you couldn't really port it to another platform. But now, instead of directly interfacing with those features, there's a hardware abstraction layer. So instead of saying, write to that register, um, whatever bits, uh, series bit bits whatever whatever you want that so it, it, it pulls that one pin high instead uh, the code actually now says oh I've I want to set pin this to high and then the hardware abstraction layer does that mm. and you can just take that top functional layer and put it on that board that board that board which is going to make development from what I understand a lot more efficient a lot quicker and a lot more universal so I'm looking forward to what's coming now for Marlin 2.0. Mm-hmm. And you have already been playing around with compiling your own Marlin. I, I think I've read on Twitter because it's different. You can't use the Arduino IDE anymore. You, I think you can somehow still use Arduino. Um, but the official, uh, well, what, what I used and I think what's what's officially recommended is Visual Studio Code. Okay. With, uh, what is it, PIO, Platformio, yeah, 
Yeah, okay. Um, so that is basically the so Visual Studio Code is basically your your, your code editor, um, and then Platformio allows you to build for all those different targets. So it allows you to build for the eight bit board, for the thirty two bit, for this platform, yada yada yada. So that takes care of the the interfacing to the actual like. Mm-hmm. Ex- I I don't understand exactly how it works, but it allows you to to work on those platforms. Okay. It's different. It's I think once it's set up, it's a bit smoother than Arduino because you have it's just much more powerful than, than mm. the simple Arduino editor. Yeah. And yeah, it's it's different. I think I need to do a tutorial on how to set that up. <laughs> but um it does it does definitely work very well. Cool. Is uh Visual Studio Code free, like um free of charge? I gotta say that. It's free as in beer, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, because so far, I think I've just known Visual Studio from like the professional environment where it is not a really cheap software, but yeah, that's really nice. Yeah. It's Visual Studio code, so it's I, I guess it's like a light version of that. I don't okay, know. but still you have all of the syntax highlighting and yeah, stuff like that. Obviously. Oh. The, the, the things that were missing in Arduino IDE for forever. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, all the things you, you wish Arduino had, Visual Studio Code does have. Cool. It's I, I think it's still very usable. I don't know what um, what the Mullen team actually develops in. Okay. Um, because at the core, I think Platformio is made to, you know, be cross-platform, not just for what platforms you can build for, but also where it runs. Um, and yeah, they just happen to have a a plugin for Visual Studio Code that makes it kind of kind of a smooth process. Cool. Yeah, really looking forward to it. I still need to upgrade my Sapphire Pro, which is behind me, to Marlin 2.0 because um, for fast printing with that machine, I really need to use Linear Advance because otherwise it's just the print results are not really nice. Too shaky. Yeah, Um, Not too shaky, but the, the extrusion system is too... Well... What's the difference between, uh, what's the opposite of, like, slowly reacting because it's about an extruder? Yeah. Uh, Träge. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Damn your English. People yeah. know what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the extrusion system on that printer, I'm going to go wash my hands real quick because I'm, I've got written on them. Okay. Back. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> I'll add a marker in the audio track so I can find it. By the way, did we get any input on chapter mark tools? I haven't noticed. I think I looked through nothing about them. So please, guys, if you know a tool that lets us do chapter marks, let us know. Okay. Uh, E3, how is it spelled? Hem, no, Hemera. There we go. The not a Hermes. <laughs> well, uh, I don't. What a what a mess with that name. I think. Well, I think it's not Herm. Yeah, stimmt. It's Hermera. I always thought it was Hem- Hermia. Hermera. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so the thing was, uh, lots of like guys from the community had. Um, one of the pre-production units of the E3D Hermes. Um, Formerly known as Hermes, yes. Hermes. 
And just like the night before they released it, we all got an email telling us, okay, sorry guys, uh, I think we need to rename the extruder due to some legal problems we, we ran into. <laughs> Yeah, we. I, I don't think we can. Uh, we. I think we both know which company it is specifically, but I don't think we're supposed to tell you guys which company that has interest in the Hermes brand name was actually threatening them. No. Or, or let's say, um, you know, kindly hinting at the fact that they own a trademark. Yeah. But uh, yeah, holy crap! They they did pull it off. Yeah, just in one night <laughs> renamed everything and stuff like that. Um, the interesting thing was when I later checked my still Hermes extruder was that I think they tried to trademark the name E3D Hermes or something like that. And probably this was one of the reasons why it popped up in some system. I, I don't know, but I could imagine that this was the case because there is like this R thing or something like that on the on the old Hermes. I need to check that. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I think they already own trademarks on uh, on the products that have a name. Yeah. I don't think they can trademark E3D V6, but uh, mostly that is to stop uh, like Amazon and eBay sellers selling fakes and calling it E3D Hemera or E3D V6. Um, because really, on a, on a, how else could they defend, uh, you know, the genuine E3D brand. Yeah, um, they're okay with with clones being sold as E3D compatible or whatever, I guess. But um, you shouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> and at, at that point, it's not even. I mean, if if it's if if somebody's selling it as an E3D Hemera and it's actually a a knockoff, it's not. It's not a clone. It's a knockoff. It's a fake. Yeah, uh, and the only way to defend that, I think, for them is to to have a trademark on it. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's I think that's the background of that, but uh, I guess some company was first and and claimed the entire Hermes brand for themselves, which is interesting because there already are multiple companies using the Hermes branding. Uh, seriously, so, okay. I wasn't aware the, aware of that. I just know like one company which is also called similarly. Yeah, I mean the the, the two companies that I can think of and that, that they've been brought up uh, on on Twitter is uh, the delivery service. Yeah, uh, which by the way that they suck as a delivery service, so <laughs> that's just my opinion. And the the luxury brand, I think the French luxury brand that does I don't know what. Okay, uh, but they're spelled with a with an apostrophe over the second year, so Her Hermes or something. I don't know. You you mean an accent? Uh, I don't speak French. <laughs> Did, speak didn't you learn French at school? <laughs> no, I had Latin for you three years. You had Latin. Years. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Was probably worth your while. Yeah, f definitely. Sure, <laughs> sure. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. We'll see. Ah, uh, yeah. So, yeah, so that's that. You, you've had one, right? You liking it? You agree with the reviews? Yeah, I, I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. Um, the thing is, I think I'm the only one using it in a Bowden configuration. Um, so I can't directly compare your results to mine, but so far it's uh, it's just nicely engineered. It's quiet. It um, just eats everything you, you put at it. Yeah. 
but I, as I said, I still have some some issues with my um, with my Sapphire printer, and I need to upgrade firmware and stuff like that before I also do a rev- review or a guide of the Bowden w- version of the Hermes. But yeah, yeah. Um, people have been complaining about my review that there's not a lot of printing and printed footage in there. But I mean, the thing is, how are you supposed to show something that's you know that's just good that's just reliable uh you just show a printer doing its thing and printing and producing good parts uh it's <laughs> it's it's i could have shown just parts but it's like what's the point of that <laughs> um the really the big thing for me for for Himera is is cost it's just mm. massive cost reduction versus um i've i've got it in the video versus the bondic bmg versus uh e3d titan setups or or just any other extruder setup it's almost like you're you're getting the v6 thrown in there for free you're getting free not hot end but hot side and yeah i I think cost is really the only differentiator at this point where extruders if it's if it checks the box it's dual gear it's uh geared down three to one the hot end's good they all print extremely well Mm -hmm. they all print super reliably the bontech stuff as well uh and himera is right up there it's it's really gonna have to be price at this point yeah and because 90 well like 110 pounds for the whole extrusion system is really really competitive yeah if if you're only buying like a set of bontech gears it's 35 40 bucks or something like that yeah i did the comparison the the bontech set with a v6 is 50 percent more okay yeah. Um, but I was going off of MatterHacker's pricing, which some people say, oh, you can get these parts for cheaper. Yes, I get that, but... Ballpark. Y- y- yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, and, that's and, that. Well, and the extrusion, like the... Um, how do you say? Like the distance between the feeder gears and the hot end is kind of like the shortest that you can imagine, which makes it so good for flexible filaments and makes it yeah. way more responsive because um, you like get rid of a lot of flex of the filament. Yeah, though I think that that would that would lend itself to doing an actual A B test of, of yeah. going. Okay, this is now this is the same extruder gearing, but now I'm using the Bowden version and I'm adding a bit of length um, to the length where the filament is under compression yeah uh and just changing nothing else about the setup and just doing one test here and one test there and seeing how much of a difference that actually makes um well probably not too much in the end because even with kind of a long bowden tube you can get really really nice prints if you tune your settings in right but yeah yeah it it if anything it makes it less complicated and easier just to get the uh get it tuned into perfection yeah because you don't need to compensate for you know having long retracts in, in Bowden systems for example or having linear advance on the extruder you don't need those tricks you just have you know filament in is filament out mm-hmm. still not perfect because it's still a, a molten glob of filament in there and that's highly non-linear as everybody who's ever made an extruder and tried to engineer that uh, knows I've never done that, but I'm told that's how it works. Uh, so it's still a really messy system, but at least we can take out as men, as much of the uh, uncertainty as possible. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So no, now it's not called Hermes anymore, but her 
Hemera. Hemera. Oh, hard. E3D Hemera, formerly known as Hermes. <laughs> as its full name. Yeah. All right. So I have been working quite a lot this week and the last weeks. And there was something popping up on Twitter, I think, at Wednesday or Thursday or something like that, which I just followed, well, on on the side. So I don't know. Maybe you can explain what all the yes. fuzz was about. Okay. Um, Prusha, obviously, because we, again, you guys know what we're going to be talking about. So um, obviously it's very easy if like three or four people have a strong opinion on something, they can really inflate a topic. I don't know if that's what happened, but um, let's just say there's been a, a discussion going on about Prusa requiring you to break your mainboard to flash custom firmware. So I don't think I've seen that on the on the early units of the Prusa Mini that they've shown, but on their Prusa Buddy board, I believe it's called, which is the, the 32-bit board running the Mini. The Mini, by the way, is, is being shipped now, so people actually have the actual finished Mini. There is now a system in place where you cannot flash your own firmwares um, because the firmwares, or at least, let me, let me back up, a, uh, back off a step. So the buddy board runs a real-time operating system, uh, like a Linux system, I don't know what, what exactly. Um, and then it basically has a container, as far as I understand it, a container for what is a custom version of Marlin um, that runs inside that operating system somehow. Don't ask, don't ask me the details. So it's it's Prusa's operating system that does all the Wi-Fi and the, the nice color screen, I think, and all that. And then there's a, a modeling core that does temperature control and motion and all the 3D printery bits. Um, and I think that's what you can... That and the, the entire operating system is, uh, is now signed. So the which means you cannot program your own software onto it unless you also have the master signing key um, that Prusa obviously is keeping on the wraps. Um, that is number one. And that's that's actually how most commercial manufacturers are doing it that want to keep their products protected. I mean, just think of the Xbox or Playstations or whatever, where it's basically impossible for you to uh, put your own firmware software on it. Now... What Prusa have still done is they've enabled you to still run your own, I guess, Marlin versions on that board. And I think also the, yeah, it, it enables DFU. So that's the deeper flashing uh, interface for the real-time operating system. They allow you to still replace all that without signing it. But you have to break out a tab from the board. So you have to physically crack out a, a bit of the PCB of the buddy board to allow you to flash and run your own software on it. Now, all that does is, um, well, it, it's a bit of a workaround for Prusa. So first of all, the, the processor now lets you access those, those programming features without requiring the Prusa signature. Um, but on the other hand, Prusa now have a physical way to trace that you have perhaps at some point flashed firmware to that board. Um, what I think it actually is, then, okay, the result of that, that you've broken out that tab, is that Prusa will decline warranty on the electronics if you've broken out that tab, which means you have potentially flashed your own firmware on it. You may have burned up some parts of the board, which was outside of Prusa's control. Um, what I think, the, or the reason why I think Prusa are actually requiring you to 
I guess, break the board is that as far as warranty laws go, you can't actually decline people warranty because they have run custom firmware on uh, on a product. For example, on phones, I think it's it's the way if you run um, formerly Cyanogen mod uh, on your phone instead of the stock software, uh, the manufacturer cannot decline warranty if, I don't know, the, the speaker fails. Mm-hmm. Which may have been caused by the software, but they still can't really decline it. It's a it's a bit of a of an odd situation. So it's the same with 3D printer firmers. I can think of code right now that will sneakily burn out your board, uh, your your heated bed MOSFET after a thousand hours. It will work fine for a thousand hours, and then suddenly it'll set fire to itself. You can do that with a firmware, um, and basically. By having that tab broken out, Prusa is saying, okay, if for some reason your custom firmware burns down, the printer burns down, your house does whatever, you can still, because it's it's copper within the PCB and that's not going to melt typically, uh, you can still see, okay, it was missing that bit. So it's a it's a way for Prusa to decline warranty because you've, you've broken, quote unquote, your board. But it's also for them to uh, get out of liability if you do mess with the printer and it starts acting up and, and fails in a horrible way. Yeah, so that's that's the the what they're doing. Now, people are picking that up as Prusa are now restricting what we can do with the printer. Mm-hmm. Um, because that they're requiring you to sign the stuff or they're, they're requiring the firm to be signed by themselves and and for some reason open source is being tied into that and saying oh that's not in the open source spirit which i can see yeah but you can still break out that tab and turn it into a a developer edition or something i don't know and there also is which i think they failed push have failed to communicate particularly well uh there's also a developer program so that officially sanctioned or officially approved uh, firmware mods can be run on the stock mini without having to break that tab out. Okay. So still covered on the warranty, still fully supported. Well, I guess not supported, but still covered on the warranty by Prusa. Tab stays in place, but they approve firmwares or or mods uh, to the firmware that people can then flash. Okay. I wasn't aware of that. First question Yes. The software it's or the firmware itself is still open source? Yes. Okay. So minus minus the signing key. Okay. So kind of the only thing that you gotta do if well, you put like an, a new hotend or a new extruder, which is like not compatible to the current firmware, is that you need to break out the tab and then you can flash your own firmware, but so those things are not then covered under warranty. What I what I can what yes. I can understand because um, having that many printers out in the wild and being a company that does support on their printers, you kind of need to have a way in order to distinguish printers that are not working anymore because somebody fiddled around with them and printers that are still stock and you kind of messed something up and that's the reason why they not work anymore and i think this is kind of a legitimate uh, way of doing that Uh, in my opinion it 
doesn't really take away something from the user. And I totally understand that Prusa did that because firmware and electronics modification can screw up things. And they, on the one hand, don't want to support that because that's additional effort for them, what costs them money and the, the Prusa Mini is already uh, built to a price. And on the other hand, we had the incident where one of the Prusa printers started burning because um, something wasn't like properly rigged up there. And I think this has already caused them to be cautious in that direction that if something like that happens again, they have an easy way to directly say, okay, this printer was modified. It's not stock anymore. So we are not liable anymore. Yeah, at least so if if it's a hardware mod, like uh, what happened with the the Burning Mark III, um, that's relatively easy to see. Well, after it's burned down to, to a pile of ash, maybe not anymore, but it's relatively easy to see if you go to a printer or you, you get sent a picture of it that, hey, this is a different hot end. There's something been modded here or whatever. That's hardware. That's that's easy to trace back. But if it's just firmware, there's really no way to like detect what version of, of firmware it was running when something X went down and maybe the, the chip burns or something mm. or you could even reflash it to the stock firmware if, if it's uh still working that much um so really that there's no way to trace what exactly has happened yeah and and also like there, there, there are two things that i can well i guess three things that i can see um that play together here so the first one is intentionally malicious firmware. Um, I see firmware being traded around for ANET printers for whatever uh, that somebody compiles, and I have also created an ANET A8 firmware with a with a hex file that somebody can flash. Nobody can check what I did there. Like that example of you know a thousand hours into using it, it'll just you know ignite itself. You you have almost as a user, you have zero ways of of checking for that. Um, and even if it's from a source, and I mean, if in the end it's still Prusa's machine, or the machine, Prusa doesn't own the only machine, but Prusa is liable for the machines, right? Mm. Um, so that's number one intentionally malicious, intentionally malicious firmware. The other one is just firmware screw ups, um, you know, just not having a safety feature in place that, you know, ends up burning something down. And the third one is because you, you can't just flash the Marlin, the motion code and the control portion of that. You can also flash the operating system is just malware that's uh, because it's the, the mini is Wi-Fi connected and all that. It's mm-hmm. in your home network. Mm-hmm. Um, it would probably be trivial to uh, add a backdoor to that real-time operating system that somebody else is able to gain access to your network and to your devices or whatever you've got on, the, on your network that way. So it's it's those three things that are both in the interest of Prusa and in, tra- in the interest of the users, I think, to a, thir- mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Yeah. And if you do want to mess with, with fire, I mean, it's, it's the here be dragons. Uh, is, that, is that how it works? Yeah, here be dragons. Uh, sound basically, yeah, I break out that tab and you, you accept that, um, that risk you're taking, which flashing firmware, especially on, on an internet-connected device, always is. Uh, and on a device that is, you know, responsible for handling thermals in a way. And yeah, you just say, okay, I'm not going to claim warranty on that board. That's all that's happening. Mm. Yeah, but still, if 
bearings fail or any other mechanical parts, it's still covered under warranty. So Prusa is not saying yeah, absolutely. there won't be any warranty for the whole machine anymore. It's just the electronics, which is totally understandable. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> it, in my opinion, he doesn't really take something away or is against the spirit of like the open source community. It's, he still provides the firmware. He still provides in a simple way to flash your custom firmware. You just, I don't know, it's an additional step and maybe sometimes it, it might be even better that users are more aware what they are doing by the step of flashing a firmware which they downloaded somewhere on the internet. So, I still think Prusa could have done better there. Okay. Um, first of all, communicated much earlier um, because this is now something people are discovering as they receive their minis, yeah. expecting something that is as open as the Mark III, which has zero checks. Yeah. Um, so they could have announced that and 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 went like, okay, we we also we got the developer program and you can still do everything you want. And the only thing is happening is is we we're not going to warrant your mods. Um, the other thing I just forgot. <laughs> <laughs> no, the the other thing is that um, like I I know why they why they've or I think I know why they have that tab. It's because they, they again they cannot decline warranty if it's just a just a software mod mm -hmm. um so they actually require you to what's considered breaking the board mm -hmm. um so i think that's a pretty brutal uh way of, of enabling custom firmness but by, by literally tearing out a tab of the board it's like it's it's got score marks like it's supposed to be broken out if you want to but you actually need to damage your board to do that and i think that kind of sends the wrong message yes it's permanent yes it's whatever it's it's the i guess if it was like just a little ear that he broke off and not like out of the center section of the board you've probably <laughs> seen the picture if it's just a little yeah. ear that he break off like a key or something um maybe that would have been better and the thing is also i think it was samsung with their Knox security system uh that prevented custom firmware flashes on their on their s5 s6 uh phones where you could still flash custom firmware, but the processor actually burned a trace within itself once you did that. Mm -hmm. It was uh, that was permanently burnt and permanently mm -hmm. open circuit. It was irreversible, but it's invisible to the user. Technically, mm -hmm. you can chill. You can still check for that fuse whether it's burnt or not. Um, but it's not like you, you you're ripping out a piece of your board. No. Still, same effect. Maybe a bit harder to check for if you have if you if you're recovering a chip from a fire, but mm. same effect to mm. to you know decline warranty on on modded boards. Okay. Well, yeah, I I I totally understand that, and the way they communicated was probably not the best thing. I, I mean, they didn't. Well, they, they did, didn't communicate yeah. it at all. That's the. I yeah. think I think the guy who started all of the conversation, he had a, a screenshot out of the manual yeah. in uh, that tweet. <laughs> uh, sure. so let's open it up. Yeah, let's open it up. Uh, so, Louis. Well, may, maybe it was, I don't know how, how long the lead times for those boards were and if this was something like an, an afterthought to the incident that happened with one of the Mark IIs or, or Mark Threes, or 
if they have already planned that for a longer amount of time. And if they have already known that for longer, I think it was really bad communication. If it was just like in the last second, yeah, still they could have communicated it it better. They but, should have, yeah. But yeah. Um, I don't remember seeing it on the board that I saw at Earth where the mini was announced. Okay. Um, but I also didn't specifically check for it. So yeah. I'm, uh, I might have just missed it. Link, by the way, to the tweet is down in the description. Yes, very much so. Well, it, it is a feature on the board that stands out. So probably if it would have already been there on at Earth or at, no, it wasn't announced on at Earth, at, at Earth uh, yeah. you probably would have seen it if you have been taking a look at, at, the, at the board. I don't know. Well, um, I guess to, to sum up my, my thoughts on the entire thing is like, yeah, I wish there wasn't a, uh, a waiver of warranty if you, if you flashed your own firmware. Yeah. Everybody wishes that. Everybody wants that. And I think that's in the spirit of, of a open source developer board. Yes, for sure. But Push are, are shipping so many printers right now. And I'm, I'm sure they've deal with customers that have messed up their printers by software mods or something. And then they want Push to fix it. And, I, and actually, just today, I got an email on, hey, I built this Prusa clone. Can you please help me fix this firm? And I'm like, it ain't my responsibility. It's your thing. <laughs> Sorry, I, 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 can't, I can't offer email support for everyone who, who builds stuff. Um, <laughs> I'm sure they could have they done warranty for, for all the custom firmers and, and, and use cases people have with their printers, but it's just going to drive up cost. Yeah, it's just everything's a matter of how much money can you spend on this, and I think in the end they decided, okay, if it's I don't know, it's it's insurance for liability that goes up, it's uh, support costs by their employees, by the people that the Prusa employ, it's just going to drive up cost, and it's probably smarter to have you know a, a default cost-effective printer, yeah, instead of paying for for all the screw-ups that people could do with their machines mm. and i'm not saying that every custom firmware is a screw-up they're good community there's good community work too um one thing that's been brought up in the in the twitter threads is that what if you actually fix a bug that you found in the official prusa firmware and you need to be able to to develop on the board you need to be able to flash firmware to that to or fix that stuff for prusa what then? You still you still waive warranty. I don't know. This is actually this is probably one of the rare one in ten thousand cases. I don't know. Probably yeah. <laughs> Though to be fair, if if people if people have pressure to uh, to fix bugs, pressure should just send them a new board. Yeah. Or sent them a, a developer edition. I guess once, though that's that's also that's that's also hard to say because you'd, you'd only get that reward and that that um, that payment for for waiving warranty once you've actually fixed something. If you're just working on it, if you're just mm -hmm. in the process, you, you you don't have anything to show for yourself. Yeah. Uh, even though you may be contributing, <sighs> it's it's an edge case. I think that that's still something that needs to be resolved somehow yeah like just that or if you if you need a, a development board just have prusa send them one out with with the tab broken out or something like that <laughs> um i think i think that's something that could be solved 
Uh, indeed, yeah. Um, well, we'll see how how it will turn out, and I don't know how strict they are on their warranty claims. But yeah, as 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 I said already in the beginning, I totally understand why they did it. So yeah, um, absolutely understand it. I again, I wish it was different. Yeah, yeah. but it's 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 how things are. <laughs> if if you want to be a profitable business, and if you want to have like if you want to provide proper support uh support is expensive and um yeah. i guess one one quick anecdote to um to maybe give some context what i'm noticing on live streams on youtube the streams that i enjoy the most are the ones that have less than a thousand viewers where it's literally just the core community the people that that actually enjoy my content i really enjoy that you know chat is very uh, well-behaved um mm. helpful friendly but as soon as the stream blows up like the uh i think the sl1 unboxing kind of went went to the edge of that but also definitely the uh live build of the prusa clone mm -hmm. once youtube starts recommending that content to more people outside of of like the core of of the folks who really love your content it just gets messy like you get trolls you get idiots you get you get explicit word people um you, you just get such a, a a a wide range of people some that really don't know what you're even doing some that maybe have a clue but know everything better uh some that are just indecent humans uh, humans um you get those people and prusha is, is in that same spot where they're so popular now especially with a low-cost printer that they're not just going to get the people who actually know what they're doing they're also getting the people who well, I don't want to discredit any other projects at this point. But you also get the people who who are kind of just read one or two things on the internet and think they they know everything. Mm. You also get those people and they, you know, the bigger your brand is, the more likely people are to actually break things, I think. Yeah. Or just do dumb things. <laughs> so, yeah. Maybe that, that helps give some content there. Yeah. Have we covered the Prusa situation in... I in guess, I guess. As, as much as we should, yeah. Yeah, so... it's. I think it's it's being made into much more of a, of a deal than it actually is. Yeah. As I said, we'll, we'll see how it will develop if there are cases where things happen it's, that would not have happened before and how they handle it. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's... What other company is doing it better than that? Or is, is offering support on, on yeah. <laughs> okay. Questions. Questions. Yeah. Ellen Cohen is asking, anyone have experience or thoughts on Iga's tribological 3D printing filament? I'm thinking of giving it a try for some oddball bushings I need. Um, seems like a material the melt zone might enjoy. I, I actually just remembered I did print with it um because we, we obviously go through these questions before we start recording but i did print with it and that was for that um garden hose roller thing where yeah. i had two printed bushing inserts i did print with it yes so Actually, yeah you have already worked with the igos uh what's, is it igli dur or igli glide ah they both they have both so yeah. i guess they are like known for their bearing materials and 
everything that moves is things that they create. And they also have the material that they use in injection molding and actually also SLS 3D printing as, as a filament available. And um, there are different different types of material and most of them can be printed on just like a standard FDM 3D printer that you also have at home. Yeah. You already played around with it. I already... I printed a a bushing for a trapezoidal lead screw a couple of weeks right. back um worked quite well um i also just have a sample that i got like two years ago at form next yeah if everyone has those little packs yeah of, <laughs> what is it 10 meters no five meters or something uh, not a lot of filament <laughs> but for for bushings you probably don't need well, you rarely need all that much material because if anything, you're, you're just printing the bushing. You're not printing the entire part mm. out of that stuff. I yeah, can't... For, for me, sorry, yeah. continue. I, I can <laughs> remember that you said in that video that you had issues printing with it, probably also because it was already quite old. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem to be the, the easiest material to print uh, just in general. Of course, they have a bunch of different grades of, uh, of filaments. 180, 180, 150, PF, BL, J260, C2. So they've got like almost 10 different filaments, which are all kind of made for different processes. And some are just made to be really easily printable. Some are made to be wear resistant with special material combinations. I'm sure there's one that's that's a bit easy to print. Yeah. Um, and it can it, offer the advantage of a real bearing material. So if you have applications, I think it's definitely worth a try. And well, I, I didn't really like test it in, in depth. It was working, but for that application, probably ABS or PLA would have been working as well. But if you have kind of demanding applications, yeah, yeah. go for it. Uh, I dried so my roll before. I dried my roll before I used okay. it and it was working very well. So again, as with other like uh, more technical materials, keep it dry. It makes life way easier. Yeah. And it's, uh, I think egos are, are giving you some numbers of lifetime expectancy from just, you know, material A, material B, material C. I think they've compared PLA or ABS to their uh, bushing yeah, bushing or bearing. Bearing always has is always a, a rolling bearing, right? Is it? Um, I don't know. Uh, whatever. Their their um their printable materials are not quite as good as the actual injection molded uh Igos bushings that you can buy, but they're pretty close. Mm -hmm. um, they're like eighty percent of the lifetime of a of an injection mold. It's something in in that ballpark. Mm -hmm. Because obviously you need to make it printable versus making it injection molding ready. So different requirements for those two different processes. And apparently there's a bit of a of a step down for the 3D printing materials. But mm. still it's a very it's it's a lot better than um for example the PLA bushings that the early uh Prusa metals used. So <laughs> a lot, a lot better than that. Yeah. And the interesting thing also is what IGOS is providing. You can upload your step files on their website. And they will print those parts in SLS IGOS bearing material. So Ooh. yeah, that's really cool. And they also have a service where you have like the design customization, uh, 
design customizer that you also have on Thingiverse. Uh, on their side, you can design gears and bushings directly in the browser and get it printed in, in SLS in their bearing material. And that is nice. That is really nice and can be how, handy. Do you, do you know how much that is roughly? Like reasonable, expensive, crazy expensive? I think, well, it's not the cheapest, but it's not crazy expensive. So if okay. you just have the application for some special parts, it might be even even cheaper to just directly purchase it from them. Uh, having it printed out in a, uh, well, in a higher grade of their bearing materials instead of buying a lower grade material and printing it on your FDM 3D printer. Yeah. And obviously putting the work in, tuning the material, yep. failing at the print, you're just guaranteed to get a part. Yeah. So if you're interested, also links in the description. Cool. Let's move on to Eric Sederberg's thread of comments and input and very helpful stuff uh, that we saw there. Okay. Let's, uh, we've, we've not really sorted these, um, but let's start, let's just start with the top one. So the company you were thinking about with the sand plus metal powder is iro 3d are they italian no they are no i wouldn't they are either northern american or canadian uh, i think there's a place somewhere around seattle or vancouver Probably Seattle. Your browser does not currently recognize any of the videos from it's available. That's a good Google hit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, so they're doing that. Um, next up, for DIY metal DED welding, a friend of mine did that a couple of years back, and it did work reasonably well, but the resolution, of course, was not great. Stockholm Makerspace. Yeah, there's a picture of that. So DED welding is is what? is like having a MIG torch on a robot arm or a 3D printer or something like that on a okay. CNC. Just melting wire and creating your rough part with that. But okay. it will like mostly require you to machine all of the surfaces. So it's basically what this old Tony did. It is what this old Tony did in one of right. the last aluminum videos. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the I, th I think it was like two or three years ago where we printed a very similar part. I don't know if you've got the uh, Instagram uh, open, but just printed a ring onto yeah. a, a flat metal sheet. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting process, um, and yeah, depending on the application, you might even be okay with leaving the surface as is. And I think mm -hmm. the yeah, I think the the bridge that was printed that way in the netherlands right, yeah. it yeah. was looking like that in the end uh if you want to use guess it, the, the mating surface and stuff you do have to either weld on plates or something or machine it down yeah because exactly it, it's really rough one of the parts in the boeing dreamliner is also manufactured that way norsk titanium mm. they are also doing d i think they're doing ded welding um and um, they also produce the rough part in using the same process, but then they machine all of the surface and they end up with 
we have with the finished part, which is like near net shape 3D printed. And you save yourself the hassle of machining a lot of material away, which is especially expensive in titanium because not only the raw material is expensive in, for titanium, but also machining titanium is, is, is way harder than aluminum. So something yeah. like th like that makes sense if the materials are hard to work with. Um, there are other companies that use this process for repairing stuff. Um, so for building onto defective broken parts. Exactly. So right. either you just machine away the the areas that are corroded or uh, things like that, or you really just chop your part in half and build up parts of uh of of the uh yeah. of the um, yeah of of the structure again uh so there it is a it is a really feasible process because uh you might have a component that costs a couple of hundred thousand dollars but you have at some location a lot of corrosion or wear just during uh due to the the way it's used and you machine it yeah. away you put new material on there uh, then finish it up again and you have a kind of new part yeah, I guess that the way that would work without recamming for every single failure mode is you actually machine away to a to a certain level that you've you've accounted for at some point. So exactly. if you have like one one bit, you just always depend. No matter if it's just the top or the entire thing that's broken off, you just machine the entire thing away, and then you have your fixed preset uh, operation that builds onto that nice machine surface. Yep. Kind of like what the what the i3 does for actually fixing body damage <laughs> with with a, with a carbon fiber shell you just you just always mill out a, a set panel and you have a, a replacement panel you glue in <laughs> yeah and it's kind of kind of expensive to maintain yeah <clears throat> all right um yeah, next nice. correction also by eric again um we talked about MIM FDM 3D printing in the last episode where you print a metal filled filament and then deep binder and sinter it. And well, he for once said that the debindering process that is used for debindering the ultrafuse, so taking um, the polymer um, away from like the remaining powder particles is done at 150 degrees Celsius in an oven in a nitrogen and nitric acid atmosphere so i think nice <laughs> so probably you not don't so stick your hand in there no probably not something you want to do at home or you probably even can do at home because i think this was the question why we discussed that the last time yeah. though there are other materials on the market that are not catalytically debindered, but for example, debindered using a solvent, like for example, desktop metal is doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing that he also said, or where he just said, okay, pay attention. So the binder that is used in the ultrafuse, um, so the polymer is POM. And if you are printing POM from aldehyde, is well released during the process. So don't do that in your living room or stuff like that. So if you're working with that material, make sure uh, that you have a well-ventilated uh, area. Yeah. And apparently, um, the, the last thing he's saying here is the main binder is POM and the secondary is PE, polyethylene. That's just left once you've catalytically converted uh, the POM 
Ah, okay. And wash that out. You still have some PE left. And I'm guessing that just gets burnt off because PE, I, I believe, burns off pretty cleanly. Um, that is just burned off during the sintering process then, yeah. I'd assume. Because it's, if it's just if it's just metal particles, it, it's not glued together by anything yeah. technically. It's not there's, metal doesn't really want yeah. to stick to itself, yeah. unless you have it sintered, of course. And the the PE is just that last bit of of remaining material, which makes me wonder why not have everything just be a PE binder? Probably because out. during the burnout process, lots of gases start to form and they might screw up like the structure of your sintered part because okay, so it kind of breaks got, apart. So you, you turn your, basically that that, that three-step process it, it is then, uh, you turn your part from a metal powder plus palm plus PE into a metal powder plus PE sponge. Exactly. That allows all the gases from the sintering process and the PE burning off then to escape cleanly out of the part as you sinter it and then mm. you sinter it down and actually... Yeah, turns solid again. The PE is probably only there to give like the brown part still enough uh, structural yes. integrity that it doesn't directly fall apart. Yeah. But I wasn't aware of that as well. Interesting. Yeah, Sint sintering um, usually uh, takes place at around eighty percent of the melting temperature of of a material, just for the curious. Yep. Cool. Uh, let's move on to a few lightweight questions. <laughs> so, uh, moving from, from heavyweight metal to uh, the lightweight expanded polypropylene that, uh, I'm going to butcher that name. Fritches, Fritches is, uh, is asking about. So EPP, expanded polypropylene, is it something commercially available or is that still a sneak peek behind lab doors? So EPP, the way that I mentioned it, is um, is actually kind of like a styrofoam material, something that's not being... It's, it's not a printable material yet, um, but instead it's something that is being expanded into uh, molds, basically, and that's what that, that flying wing I showed off last time or... Yeah. time before that um is made of it's it's again it's like a styrofoam material but made from pp which is a bit more durable a bit tougher um yeah and it, yes it is commercially available um the way that they're doing it with a with a resin basically that is being expanded in that mold but you can also buy it as sheets and then cut your own wings and forms out of it with a hot wire for exactly example. not only airplanes are made out of epp i think also if you ever ordered pizza and the pizza delivery guy comes with this right. styro thing box i think that's also epp often that that could be very much true yeah because it's, it's a lot tougher than than polystyrene yeah <laughs> and should still still insulate just as well yep and staying with the with the lightweight topic, Project Air actually commented, "Hey, I'm 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 proud that we're getting some some reach with the podcast." Um, <laughs> uh, so Project Air is is working with with Tom Stanton a lot, and if you've watched either of their videos, um, you will know that they're incredibly enjoyable. So um, yeah, uh, Project Air is excited about um, you know composite planes with PLA ribs, and then a transparent or traditional um, covering material. And have 
have you done that? Have flight tests done that? I think somebody has has done something like that. Before. So um, the next question is basically the same. Um, also asking if you could just print the ribs of an airplane and then cover them with. Uh, in Germany, it's called um, Bügelfolie. Uh, yeah, Bügelfolie, but, but the brand, brand name for that. The brand yeah. name is. Uh, Aura cover. Yes. Aura cover or, or, and Aura or, cover or is the is the foil that you iron onto the part, and Aura stick is the one with I think the like sticking backside. Um, getting back Jesus, to the question, yeah. so a colleague of mine tried that process out, but he had the problem that before actually the foil started sticking on the ribs his pla ribs started melting so uh i think you kind of need a bit of experience in that process that you get the temperature just right that the um yeah that the ribs and the foil sticks together maybe pla is not the perfect material for that application maybe it's better to use something like ptg I don't know. I haven't tried it out myself. This is just the experience uh, at least a colleague of mine had. But there are designs available on Thingiverse where uh, people um, yeah, gave it a try and it worked out really well. And also he told me that the Aura cover wasn't was working even worse. He ordered something from the UK, a special really thin foil um, that also works really well for, for like ironing it on, on wings. Yeah, and that's probably a really good application and way more lightweight than printing the whole like wing itself because the thickness of the material is just yeah it's 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 too big it's it doesn't yeah. necessarily be, need to be that thick so you're you're wasting quite a lot of material on uh, on the fuselage and and the wing just because uh, the process is like that. Yeah, well, what I'm what I'm starting to understand about at least model airplanes, at least foam model airplanes, let's be specific there, is that um, basically you want your airfoil and the like the main chunk of your part of of your plane to be something that is not necessarily rigid, but actually kind of soft and and robust. So, for example, with that S800 um, foam wing, there's most of the stuff is made from EPP foam, but there are two carbon spars running through the main fuse, well, what is, I guess, the fuselage, into the wings. And basically those give the entire thing its its rigidity and its stiffness. If those weren't in there, you could just fold it in half. Um, but it also means that if you crash, which you know everyone will do at some point, um, you have all the foam that can kind of deform without it breaking. And mm. the, the carbon spars on the inside, they're just kind of protected and they, they give both the strength hang on they give both the strength and the uh the rigidity to to your part in the end but they're being protected so um, maybe something like that where you have again carbon fiber spars i think are a really great option for that where it's eight millimeter or ten millimeter tubes just running through a uh lightweight pla the the expanding pla um, which I guess is also saw. Do you need to answer that door? Yeah, I think it's the UPS guy. Just give me one second. Okay, let's, let's pause real quick. I was waiting for that. I I ordered like a, a ton of stickers for for my patrons, and this was like uh. the last batch that just arrived. So 
Now I can uh, send them around. <sighs> Good luck packaging those. Um, Back to the topic. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, uh, having a combination of, of like a carbon fiber spar and a, uh, I guess the lipo PLA would also be kind of squishy and softer because it is a foam. Um, having that just as the shape of the airfoil and, and giving it strength with something else. Mm. So you don't need to actually give the wing itself for example strength with the printing material mm. you just have make it as lightweight as possible and then yeah and also they've they, they've got very short tpu which could be very similar in in a printed form to epp form when it comes to to how rigid it actually is mm. um and that's also that's a foaming tpu mm. yeah um i think for beginner airplanes that's definitely the case that this is a great combination if you really get into high performance airplanes this squishiness and like compliance of the part is not something good because it makes the plane less predictable so like for for really high efficiency planes you want to have everything as stiff as possible but you shouldn't crash those <laughs> yeah that's the thing i've actually you know i've I've done a lot of of rc you know one tenth scale buggy driving and all that and i did like the cheapo kits and, and and cheap components for a while and then i was like okay let's get a nice remote let's get a nice uh b4.1 uh one tenth scale rear rear-wheel drive buggy and the thing is just i i've actually enjoyed you know running the cheaper models much more than than the expensive stuff because you're not worried about breaking stuff i mean yes you are but if you do break something it's not like oh now i gotta order parts for 80 bucks again oh <laughs> damn it you, you you just you can just focus on having fun instead of you know always always repairing and as long as you're not competing against anything as long as you're not in in races or competitions or stuff as long as you're just doing it for fun like Ah, come on just <laughs> yeah you know, again flight tests are, are all about building stuff from you know 10 Foam bucks board. worth of materials uh. and if it if it flexes it flexes uh. <laughs> they seem to be having fun so yeah definitely doing something right well it, it is a great addition to the hobby hobby as i said as i started there was just styrofoam and my yeah. first airplane that i got horribly exploded into a thousand <laughs> pieces when i first crashed it <laughs> people are still managing to explode those epp wings like, yeah but <laughs> plenty of youtube videos of those just <laughs> being completely obliterated and i've sent mine into the ground pretty hard and so far it's it's holding up yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah i'm right. really looking forward to also get back into the hobby but yeah need to finish stuff looking forward for the christmas holiday Right, and one last question about the shortage of PLA to finish this out. Do you know anything about the worldwide PLA shortage? Because I sure don't. Um, I read this comment just like a couple of minutes before we started, but I have read the, I think, price increase that Filamentive put out a couple of days ago or something like that where they said okay they currently have to adjust prices because uh, there is a shortage of pla and shortage of pla means that the prices are higher so there might be something to it polyalchemy even said they're currently stopping production because 
either the PLA is too expensive or they're not even even able to get it anymore. I don't have insight into that. Um, don't know. Maybe research yeah. it a little bit more, but there might be something to it. Apparently, I mean, well, we're not on the manufacturing side that much, uh, at least not on the film and manufacturing side. So apparently there's something going on, but we don't have any further input on that. Yep. But links to the articles will be in the description. Absolutely. And I think that's going to be it for this one. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for your time, Tom. Yeah, thanks for your time. And for you guys, of course, get subscribed on YouTube. Listen on Spotify, iTunes, any other podcast platform, as long as it's not Podimo. Uh, like the video on YouTube if you want to support either of our channels. And with that, also um, the Meltzone podcast. You can find our Patreons linked below. We greatly appreciate uh, Even if you're just giving a dollar a month, that does make a difference. And yeah, thank you for listening. Thank you, Stefan, for your time. And we will see and hear you all in the next one. Bye. Bye.